You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we talked to Maui Mayor Mike Victorino about where things stand on the Valley Isle. Maui logged 125 COVID cases today. Their numbers over the past week have included the report of 11 at Kahului Elementary, said to be the largest cluster in an academic setting in the state. Mayor Victorino had asked that the start of the school year be delayed because of growing concerns about the surge in cases due to the Delta variant, which is more contagious, but he was overruled. Here's Mayor Victorino. The entire state is burning up at this point, you know. Again, I got to take care of Maui, and then we're doing our best here right this very moment. You know, if you take the two-week average, 14-day average, we're at 60 a day, but still that's, you know, very concerning, very, very concerning. And you did early on put in an ask with the governor's office to delay the start of the school year. Uh, I understand that there is a cluster at one of your schools, and, and, uh, you know, that is a concern because, uh, you know, the the younger kids can't get vaccinated. Absolutely, and and that's something that, not only the delay in opening, but blended learning. You know, I wanted to have where people would have options to uh, do blended learning, you know, stay at home, um, distance learning. And there's, there are parents and families that would rather do that at this time, you know, and then that way you can really look at the numbers and those that are going to school uh, can be more distance, physical distancing can be more prevalent in the school. So this is what I was hoping to accomplish. And right now, you know, there's still discussion and cases are rising and there's frustrated teachers and you know, we're looking at all of those aspects, and we just need to continue to focus on trying to prevent the spread. Getting vaccinated, those who can, adults who can get vaccinated should be getting vaccinated. And hopefully by fall, um, the state will be able, or the CDC will allow the children to get vaccinated, you know, those that are like, say, five and older, and get that group vaccinated. I think then we can really curb the spread. But right now, we're, we're very concerned at the numbers that we are looking at. You know, um, we uh, we saw how the teachers union, you know, is uh, pressuring the DOE uh, to negotiate on some of this remote learning uh, because there are limited options this school year compared to last. Yes. And, you know, I, I know the teachers as well as administrators, all meanwhile, they want to do what is right for our students. And they want to protect themselves as well as the other faculty and staff in the school. So I, I, I stand ready to do what we can. I mean, it's not our call. It's not something I control. But whatever assistance we can be to our schools, then we'd be more than happy. Like the last, last year, we got laptops and other uh, iPads and to the schools that needed to help with distance learning. So. We tried to equip our schools better last year. I don't know why this year would be more difficult because really when you think about it, much of the equipment was put in the schools last year. And what are you hearing from the uh, healthcare systems there on Maui? Well, Maui healthcare system is at capacity, um, but they can increase their bidding. Right now they're at 219, but they can go up to 300 bids. They're equipped to expand if necessary however you know it's like everything else our staff you know i'm happy to announce that you know and you've heard this on the on tv and in other areas that there's a rapid response nursing group that's coming to maui and the rest of the state there on the big island right now 
but a new group is coming in on Monday to help uh, supplant and, and really uh, ease the pressure of our uh, health care workers, our nurses and others that have been, you know, 24-7, 365, just working their tails off, trying not only with COVID, but other necessary, you know, uh, emergencies like strokes, heart attacks, trauma cases, accidents, you know, people breaking legs and getting hurt. There's, the, the ER is just full of people with all kinds of challenges, not just COVID-19. So our medical staff, our medical, our frontline heroes are working awful hard, and we should be so thankful. And relief is on the way, and I really believe that will help them get some respite that they so, so deserve, so richly deserve. You know, when we were talking with Dr. Jim Ireland with the Honolulu Emergency Medical Services Department about how they're trying to adjust and, and scale up if, if things, you know, get really bad in the next few weeks, how are your EMTs and paramedics doing? How's the staffing there? They, they're needing help. You know, I think we know, never have enough. However, they're doing a terrific job, a yeoman's job right now in doing their job and being available and making sure we protect the community at large. Any help we can get from our fire department and others uh, who, are, who are out there assisting at all given points in all areas of our community uh, are thankful also. So, yes, we are, uh, you know, at a critical point, but not something we cannot handle. Uh, hopefully with the additional staffing coming in and other outside help, we will be able to maintain and hopefully um, retail the number of cases uh, you know, if everyone starts to get vaccinated and those who can especially get vaccinated and maybe reduce social gatherings and getting going out and maybe not doing the things, you, you know, you'd like to do right now, except essential services. These are things that all of us can help each other in staying safe and staying healthy. And where are you on the rollback uh, of, of the restrictions? We put in requests to the governor as far as the safe travels, having pre-test again. We're looking at also other restrictions that uh, we need the governor's approval on. We're like what? Mandating vaccinations or, you know, like what we've done here in the county of Maui, mandating testing if you're not vac- fully vaccinated. Work from home, teleworking has been implemented in our, our operations when and wherever possible. So we're trying to do what we can from the county's point of view and what authority we have to try to scale back wherever and to protect the people of my county. And where are we at on the deadlines for that mandatory testing? Because I know in Honolulu, I think Mayor Blangiardi has extended it because of the holiday tomorrow. It's in place and it's going to continue. It's going to continue. It's not a max. It's not a vaccination mandate. It's a testing mandate if you're not vaccinated. And that's a continuing program. And that's going to be ongoing until this Delta variant gets back into check. When did you institute that? It was instituted last week. And let me say this, you know, we've had increasing testing throughout our community. We have mobile units going out to different segments of our community to make sure our rural areas, as well as some other uh, more uh, distant districts, have testing available. So we're, you know, we've been robust in our testing programs all throughout this pandemic, and now we've ramped it up along with the state who's expanding their testing program with the National Kidney Foundation and the network of independent uh, pharmacies throughout the state. So testing is available for a lot of people all over the place. It's just a matter of getting yourself there and getting tested. 
You know, when we last talked, you had mentioned that uh, Maui had one of the lowest vaccination rates compared to other islands. What's the snapshot? Are you still seeing some pushback? Yes, we're still seeing some pushback. We've had protests. Anti-vaxxers and others are not wanting to get vaccinated. It's really difficult to to convince somebody who believes that what you're saying is absolutely wrong, no matter what facts you put in front of them. So we're just continuing with our messaging, asking people, you know, protect yourself, protect your friends and family, and protect your community. That's basically all we can do. Now we have, like Merriman's now has mandated testing for all their employees, and we're hoping other businesses which have not followed suit will start, especially those service-oriented businesses like restaurants that deal with the public in a direct manner every day. And so we want to make sure that uh, vaccinations are the number one priority throughout our county and throughout the state and nation, for that matter. You know, there is a concern about uh, medevac cases coming from the neighbor islands to Honolulu. You know, the headlines today, Straub, I think, is at capacity. Earlier this week, Queens had no more ICU beds. What's the message you want to underscore for for the residents of Maui? Right now, Molokai and Lanai depends on outside assistance. Uh, Molokai is part of the Queens system, and so when you have uh, urgent care that's needed, they're then medevac to Oahu, to Queens, and you know what the, the status of Queens is. Um, on Lanai, they are part of the health, Maui healthcare system, and so that hospital would send urgent care patients here to Maui, which we're stressed also. So what we're saying basically is we all got to band together and get vaccinated, stay, stay physically distanced, good hygiene, wear your mask. You know, these are the things you can do each and every one of us each and every day, and I think this will help curb the spread. Other than that, the spread's going to continue. It's not going to stop. So, you know, it, it, it really behooves all of us to work together as a family, as a community, and say enough and let's do what we can to prevent the curb. You know, we are hearing calls from different parts of the community saying that, you know, we should go back to the lockdown. Do you well, agree with that? Well, that's an option that is on the table and it hasn't gone away. I mean, that's still on the table itself. But we need time to um, lock down, and we have to, you know, give our visitors and residents alike to make those changes because they are profound if we go back to lockdown. You know, so um, we're hoping that if we do the other areas, especially vaccination, which we didn't have last year at this time, we can, you know, at least slow the, the spread. And with everybody doing what is right, eventually get to a point where we'll be have manageable numbers again like we had. Uh, just about a month and a half ago, six weeks ago, we're in single digits. Things are seem to be have moving real well, and then bam, it hit us, and it hit us real hard. If you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. For those who have family, especially protect the children, our kiki, and the vulnerable that are out there. Boosters are available also now, so those who are have health impairments and uh, health um, um, challenges, get your booster shot. Do what you need to do. Together we are Maui Nui Strong, Hawaii Strong. God bless you all. Mahalo and ahuiho. That was Maui Mayor Mike Victorino talking to us this morning about the latest snapshot there in that county. To date, 55% of Maui County has been vaccinated.
COVID case counts in Hawaii's charter schools are now publicly available. The Charter School Commission has been reporting the numbers to the state's Department of Health and Education, but the cases had not been included in the count of public schools. We talked to PJ4, the interim deputy director of the Charter School Commission, this morning. The case count was published overnight on the commission's website and will be updated weekly. We've been getting more requests, so we let our schools know that, hey, we'll be, uh, we'll be posting these numbers. Uh, please continue to inform us so that we can make sure we have accurate numbers. And these numbers are driving some schools to go back to remote learning. I think that's the, the benefit of having a community-oriented charter school, right, is that there's some flexibility built in. So we have, I believe, seven schools at the most recent update that have moved to a distance learning. And again, moved to distance learning on a temporary basis. So most of them, it's only for a couple of weeks. I think one of the schools is going a little bit into September. And the idea being that they have the opportunity to disinfect the school, that people have the opportunity to get tested and to quarantine if necessary. But they're working with their staff to make sure that they still provide some form of education instruction for our students. That seems to be then working itself out within the school communities then. The schools are in a tough spot, right? Because the reality is you have parents and community members who want children in school no matter what and others who don't want them in school. And so our schools are working hard to navigate what's best for their community. And when I say community, it's not just those around and the students, but it's also their staff. Our schools are very concerned about making sure our staff are healthy as well. And you have had to pretty much do your own contact tracing. Technically, yes. Our schools all report their positive cases to the Department of Health. And the Department of Health has been very good about trying to help our schools with that. They've been a bit overwhelmed as well. But our schools do contact trace as best they can. You know, obviously, we don't have a large organization doing that. So it's just each individual school trying to figure it out. But the key part to the contact tracing more so has been our schools making sure their community is aware. And so, again, that's the benefit of of our charter schools is that they're community-oriented. And so to be able to get the word out, keeping identity secure, but just get the word out, hey, there's been a positive identification. This is what we're going to do. You know, a few of our schools, i got to say, Catherine, with the notice of a positive case of COVID also only like they kept the bubble. So the bubble went into quarantine while the rest of the school continued to function. So again, that's that flexibility that they're able to have to meet the needs of whatever their community wants. I noticed on the um, count that you folks have now on your on your website that a number of schools on the Big Island have one positive case. Six of the charter schools have at least one one case. And, you know, we, we are seeing the numbers go up, go up on the big Yeah, unfortunately, you're right. We are. Yeah. So at least um, it gives a, a somewhat of a picture of what's happening, not just in the school, but, you know, island by island. In the community. Yes. Yeah, I think our schools probably mirror um, the spread of, of, of this variant pretty well. You know, obviously we're not immune to it, but our schools, again, working hard to make sure that if they if they get identified or when they get identified, they notify the proper people and they make sure to take whatever steps necessary within the Department of Health guidelines to, to ensure safety for, for their students and staff. What about the governor's order for uh, mandatory vaccines or mandatory testing? I don't know, however you want to, yeah, to look I, at it. I, I think it's mandatory testing if, they have, if they're not vaccinated. Is Again, I think our schools are public schools and they are state agencies. 
So they do need to follow the governor's proclamation. And so our schools are working on their plans to do that. They are in consultation with those around them, and they're figuring out the best way to meet the the governor's uh, proclamation and follow what they need to follow with being a state agency. So our our, our guys are all in compliance, and and they're going to work work through it and figure out the best way to get it done. One of the things we've been able to do is um, at the beginning of this, our interim director, Yvonne Lau, had, had, we had set up a uh, kind of in Wednesday information sessions with our governing board chairs and our school directors. So we're trying to get as much information to them as possible. And a couple weeks ago, we had a member, I think she's with the Department of Health. I'm pretty sure she is. And she offered or told all of our schools about a program of trying to get out and test test as many people as possible. And so our schools have been in touch with her. I think that was just prior to the the spike in cases. So I think the testing folks are all a little bit overwhelmed right now because so many people are trying to get tested. But our schools uh, are reaching out to every organization they can to try and find out how they can get tests on the campus or nearby so that both Students, parents, teachers, anyone involved can can get a test. Because it's important, even even those who are not vaccinated. It's still important once in a while to get a test and make sure that again we're we're doing our best to keep the the, the virus off the campus as best we can. And I'd like to go back that our schools have that flexibility to go into a distant learning mode in a rather short turnaround. And I I do want to give credit to our commissioners who back in May um, had some foresight on that and and because we were hopeful that we could open, but we weren't quite sure. They gave the schools that opportunity that if the conditions worsened and there was a spike in cases, that they would have the authorization to go to a distant learning mode to, to still provide instruction. Right. Because we know we still have to do that. And so, you know, I, I give kudos to our commissioners for thinking ahead on that one. And our schools are able to take advantage of that. And I think that's, again, that's a bonus of being a community-based charter school. We want to make sure we keep people informed as best we can as well. Mm-hmm. But it's also, again, our, our schools are doing a good job of keeping their communities informed. That's really what a charter school is about, is that, that community-centered um, approach to instruction. That was PJ4, Interim Deputy Director of the Charter School Commission. Our reality check today focuses on a court decision that there isn't enough probable cause to proceed with uh, murder and attempted murder charges against three police officers. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here, Catherine. Yes, and you were uh, actually in the courtroom uh, as all this came down. That's right, yeah. I uh, spent a few days in these preliminary hearings for these three Honolulu police officers who were um, charged with crimes by the city prosecutor for their role in the April 5th shooting of, I remember, Sycap, who was killed, a 16-year-old boy, and his brother, Mark Sycap, who was injured, um, but he survived. Um, so essentially, the, the city prosecutor took this case to a grand jury. The grand jury returned a no bill, said that they would not indict. Um, Prosecutor Steve Alm decided to try again with a what's called a preliminary hearing, and so that's what I was observing in that scenario, a judge decides whether there's probable cause to take the case to a trial. 
And what happened yesterday is that the judge said no, um, there was not probable cause. These officers did not commit a crime in the course of their duties that day. So, you know, how was that? I mean, when you heard the arguments, you know, from the defense and the and the prosecution. So there was so much information presented um, in hours and hours of uh, court proceedings, but it really boils down to um, two different perspectives on what happened that day. From prosecutor Chris Van Marder's perspective, he was really focused on um, the the moments before the officers pulled their triggers at this um stolen white Honda that I remember Psycap was driving. Um, and Van Marder's argument was that the officers in those moments did not have reason to shoot, that, you know, the car may have moved a little bit or they, the officers may have thought that they saw something. But Van Marder was saying the officers should have been sure that there was an actual threat before they pulled their triggers. Um, on the defense side, for um, the, the defense attorneys for each of the three officers, they said, you know, we really need to take into consideration the totality of the circumstances that this car um, had been a subject of, of an alert within the department days prior, um, and officers were told to be cautious about it. Um, and once they spotted the car, it led them on a pursuit that was speeding through residential areas, putting the community at risk, um, that this was a volatile dynamic situation um, and that the officers needed to do what they could to stop the threat to protect themselves, um, their colleagues in the community. And ultimately, Judge William Domingo agreed with the defense's argument that um, all those circumstances that led up to the shooting were considered a provocation and therefore um, the officers were legally justified in stopping the threat with their firearms. Yeah, and, you know, we, we saw how there was just, uh, you know, a ton of, uh, of uh, body cam footage released from different angles, you know, trying to understand what was happening at the time. That's right. Yeah, we saw a lot of that in court, and prosecutor uh, Chris Van Marder kind of led the court frame by frame, showing that, um, you know, the car moved this way, or, you know, we can see the passenger's lap and there's no gun there. And he tried to use those visuals um, as evidence saying, you know, hey, there was no danger to these officers. They had, they were not justified in shooting. The defense said, you know, you can't really consider a case that way, frame by frame, that the, the way the officers experienced it in real time was, was, it was over in a matter of seconds, they said. Um, and the judge um, mentioned that in his ruling that, you know, the situation was was fast moving and the officers had to make this quick decision um, and in the moment it seems they they thought that was the best thing they could do to protect themselves in the community um, so they they won't be heading to trial well I think everybody's wondering you know what uh, what does Steve Alm have to say about this we did ask him yesterday all he said um, in an email statement was that he was disappointed in the outcome of the preliminary hearing um, he said he would be saying more on Monday at a press conference at his office, so um, we'll stay tuned for that, um, and we'll definitely, you know, publish an update. But uh, for the time being, uh, yeah, we, he hasn't said what what next steps he may be taking, if any, in this case. All right, going to keep us uh, waiting until Monday. All right, but thanks so right. much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's reality check. To read her full story, visit civilbeat.org.
the U.S. military's recent exit from Afghanistan has had a significant impact not only on that country's people, but on military personnel that served there during the last 20 years. After media coverage of the exit, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs sent out an email to vets reminding them that if the current events in Afghanistan are triggering post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or if they're having suicidal thoughts, that the VA has resources available to them to cope with their distress. The Conversations, Russell Subiano reached out to the VA Pacific Islands Healthcare Systems, which serves an estimated 50,000 veterans throughout Hawaii and the Pacific Islands. He spoke with Dr. Donald Bannock, the director of the post-traumatic stress disorder program. I've seen several veterans who have served in Afghanistan post their thoughts about the U.S. military pulling out of there recently. One former Oahu resident said, we literally forged relationships, built trust, earned respect and fought with and died beside the people of Afghanistan. We gave that country back its hope. We eliminated a reign of evil that tormented that country for decades. And for what? All that progress and all that sacrifice has been in vain. In your experience working with soldiers returning from deployment there, is that a common sentiment that our military made a positive impact on Afghanistan? It is. I think that one of the working within the PTSD program here at the VA and also working for the DOD for a number of years, I've found that veterans that are returning have tried to find meaning in the work that they've done while deployed. And from one sense, it's creating a safety for the people of Afghanistan at the time. What we are tending to hear more is what was this all for? and thinking in in absolute thoughts, including the fall of Afghanistan at this point in time, was it truly worth all the effort that we put in there? So it is a common question that that we're hearing not only here at the VA Pacific Islands, but hearing across the nation. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about post-traumatic stress disorder. There are many stories of soldiers losing limbs or being severely injured while on deployment. The physical injuries are one thing. But the mental impact is another with more of us having a better understanding of the importance of mental health today. How does post-traumatic stress disorder affect veterans? How is it different from the physical injury? People tend to think of PTSD as something that either you have or you don't have, like a broken leg or like being pregnant. It actually makes more sense to think of trauma-related reactions as a continuum, more like high blood pressure because everyone who is exposed to trauma is affected by it in a different way. It's only a matter of if, in what ways and how severe. Sometimes uh, there can be growth because of uh, reassessment of one's values, goals, or purposes as they function through trauma, and patients may not have that diagnosis of PTSD, but they also may have reacted to the trauma itself. I've never heard it described as a spectrum before. It sounds like they may be able to cope with it for a while, but sometimes there's things that trigger an increase in, in, the, in the disorder. Is that, is that kind of how it goes? Absolutely. There are different types of events or triggers that can, can be present that can bring back memories for, for patients. And again, one can experience distress from memories that have occurred while deployed, but does not necessarily equate to a diagnosis of PTSD. Sometimes when we have that diagnosis of PTSD, though, that is where there is such dysfunction in their ability to re-engage upon their return from home. 
at times, different types of coping strategies that are taught within the military are really beneficial when they're downrange, but at home, they become barriers or obstacles to, to getting better. Can you touch on some of the strategies that veterans can use to cope with PTSD? So if a patient has PTSD, I'd like to start off with the benefit of evidence-based medicine, evidence-based care. We know that people with PTSD can get better. Uh, There is trauma-focused evidence-based psychotherapies, including cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure, EMDR, which is eye movement reprocessing and desensitization, which are treatment protocols with uh, trained psychologists and social workers and psychiatrists that can work with but do not have to have medications to augment or to treat the patients to bring down those symptoms and, and actually have patients heal from the PTSD itself. I think another piece of what you're describing is that some of these events that are happening in Afghanistan at this point in time can be triggering on a different level. It can just trigger some memories that are distressing to individuals. And again, I want to honor those types of distressing thoughts, images that come to individuals. And it may not require a full protocol of an evidence-based psychotherapy or a psychomedication that treats PTSD but yet can be helpful. So if somebody truly has the diagnosis of PTSD, I would recommend that they connect with a mental health provider to really target treatments that are available that are known to be effective for PTSD. For those who are experiencing distressing memories, especially as we we look at the events that are happening and how to best cope through those, just some basic coping skills are really possibly these next five, which include engage in positive activities try to engage in a positive, healthy, and meaningful ways of spending your time doing simple things, doing things that are rewarding and meaningful, enjoyable. And remember, try to avoid judgment. Stay connected. Spending time with people who give you a sense of security, feeling calm or happiness, or those who best understand what you're going through can be really helpful. Next important thing is really practicing good self-care. Look for positive coping strategies that help you manage your emotions, things like listening to music, exercising, practicing breathing techniques, spending time in nature or with animals, journaling, things like that. These are simple ways to manage feeling overwhelmed or being caught off guard by some of these distressing emotions. Stick to your routines. It can be really helpful to stick to a schedule, which includes sleeping, eating, working, doing day-to-day activities. And then something that I'd like to to talk about, especially in the context of what we're seeing on social media, is limit the media exposure. Limit how much you take in if media coverage isn't, if it's actually increasing your level of distress. Now, according to the VA, there are several problems that veterans can face when dealing with PTSD. Among them, anger, depression, substance abuse, and suicide. Russell Subiano also spoke with Justin Fienhold, the suicide prevention coordinator for the VA, about what resources are available. I've seen some posts on social media reaching out to veterans that have served in Afghanistan. One of them came from the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program in California. They said, If you're a veteran and you're struggling, uh, what we did is something to be proud of. It's not was not done in vain. The American military was successful in Afghanistan, regardless of what you see on the news right now, and we should all be proud of that. 
Don't hang your head low. Don't feel like we failed. We want you to know that you're not alone. You don't have to face any of these struggles alone. And that uh, there's people who love you, who care about you, and who have the ability to help get you past this dark moment if you're struggling right now. Can you share with our listeners what resources are available if they're contemplating suicide? I think one of the most notable resources that we would turn to is our Veteran Crisis Line, which is 1-800-273-8255. That number is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, Where it turns into the Veteran Crisis Line is when the veteran presses one, and they'll be on the phone with a, a VA personnel who will essentially triage that call and help assess that veteran, talk about whatever their presenting problem is, if they're in crisis or if there's an emergency. And if it is an emergency, the, the Veteran Crisis Line is equipped to help extend an emergency rescue when that happens. There are thousands of emergency rescues that occur every year with our veteran population. But on the why this uh, you know, Veteran Crisis Line is so important is one, it allows the veteran to get immediate support that's 24-7. There's a, someone on that line every single day, every hour, every minute, every second. It's an opportunity for the veteran to get support, to be able to find uh, resources. And when that, that call has been completed, meaning they've, they've sort of reached a resolution or maybe they've come up with a safety plan or um, even more serious, if they've had to initiate a rescue, once it's resolved, then that call will be routed to the nearest veteran clinic or medical center, I should say. And so for our veterans in Hawaii, in the Hawaii catchment area, which includes Guam and uh, Saipan, CNMI, as well as American Samoa, all of the calls coming from this region will come to here on Oahu to our location. And then we'll reach out to that veteran within 24 hours of receiving that consult and basically follow up on really any, if there's any missing pieces or continued concerns with the veteran, and we'll help them to connect to local resources. Another way that veterans can connect is within our own mental health triage. So we have an acute care clinic here on Oahu. So if a veteran is on Oahu, they can either walk in or call in, and we have a call center number for that, which is 1-800-214-1306. It's option two and four, and they can walk into the mental health triage at the ACC. The neighbor islands is a little bit different, but all this, what we call CBOX, those are community-based outpatient clinics. They can report to any one of those that are on Maui, Kauai. There are two on the Big Island, one in Kona and one in Hilo, one in American Samoa, as well as one in Guam and Saipan. And the last one I'll mention is the vet centers. The, uh, the vet centers are, you know, within every island chain as well as I'd mentioned all of those locations. Is there anything the public should know or anything more the public can do to help veterans who are struggling with suicide or, or suicidal thoughts? Are there any signs they should be looking for? The signs are what we call risk factors. These are uh, individuals that may be struggling with uh, joblessness. We want to be paying attention to if they have, you know, gainful employment. Are they about to lose or have lost their home, being evicted, and or you know, now on the street and homeless? Homelessness increases the risk for suicide. So we want to pay attention. We're also looking at when they're struggling with mental health. When we see signs of depression, we see signs of traumatic experiences. We also are looking at someone that is, you know, engaging in really risky behavior from driving recklessly to engaging in violent behavior. I would also say substance use as well. We want to make sure that we're, one, doing what we call asking the question. If we see these signs in a veteran's talking about having thoughts of, you know, no hope and not wanting to be here anymore, you don't have to be a trained professional to ask a veteran if they're okay. 
and asking the question is actually getting to the point of asking, I hear what you're saying, sir or ma'am. Sounds like you're going through some difficult times. Can you tell me, are, are you having thoughts of ending your life? It sounds very direct, but at the same time, it gives the space and the, the ability for the, the veteran to be able to share, hey, I am going through this, or no, no, I'm not. I'm, you know, I may be struggling, but, uh, you know, that hasn't crossed my mind. And it, it allows us then to know, too, if the veteran is having thoughts of suicide, we can then begin to support them with the resources they need. We never want to talk a veteran out of what they're feeling or be judgmental of what they're going through, but just really validating what they're experiencing. And so we teach that to, again, to layman figures from shelters to programs in the community is showing that we're really all in this together for our veterans. And it's going to take what we call the full public health approach to address this issue. If you could give out those numbers one more time. Absolutely. The veteran crisis line number is one 800 273-8255 and press one for veterans. The mental health triage number is 1-800-214-1306, option two, then four, and then just ask to schedule a, a mental health session with a mental health provider. That was Justin Feenhold and Dr. Bannock of the VA Pacific Islands Healthcare Systems. Uh, they were speaking with HPR's Russell Subiano. They say that if you're a veteran struggling with PTSD or thoughts of suicide or a family member of a veteran dealing with any type of distress, it's important you know you're not alone. For information on the resources available, click on the links of the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for HPR comes from Malama Ola Health Services on Oahu, offering hospice and palliative care founded by physicians who, with their staff, are dedicated to providing patients and their families with individualized care. MalamaOlaCares.com Aloha, this is Dave Lawrence, host of HPR's All Things Considered. We regularly check in with world-renowned musicians like Carlos Santana, Linda Ronstadt, and many others in a series called Off the Road. We get into some classic storytelling and exclusive musical performances, too. Catch Off the Road Friday afternoons during ATC or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For info, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. For the past five years, Extension agent Jensen Ueda has been running field trials exploring the idea of growing garlic here in Hawaii. Test plots in Wailua, Kula, and Waimea have yielded data that Ueda and his co-principal investigator, Kylie Tavares, have been sharing with growers. The news coming out of the fields is positive. Island farmers are successfully producing the savory pungent cloves. And even better news, Hawaii County has just awarded a $23,000 grant to bring the trials to Kona and Hilo. The Conversations Lillian Sung sat down with Jensen Ueda to learn about local garlic. I knew that the majority of garlic being consumed in Hawaii was imported from California and China. So there's a potential market that could be tapped into if we can work on the economics as far as garlic production in Hawaii. And maybe that's not the same market that we compete with. We work with more of the higher end markets and develop value added products to compete with 
that higher end market versus the wholesale market. Break that down for me. What stops people from being able to grow garlic in Hawaii? For the most part, it's a seasonal thing because we have such short days in Hawaii. We don't have the temperate climate like the normal garlic growing areas have. We have to manipulate the garlic seed prior to planting to increase bulb size. So that manipulation is called vernalization. So naturally, garlic is planted before the winter frost. And that winter frost basically breaks dormancy on the garlic. And then as garlic comes into the spring, it's released from that dormancy and then allowed to germinate through the snow. Or in some cases, there's no snow. It naturally gets that that chill period during the winter. Well, in Hawaii, we don't have that chill period that the U.S. mainland has. So we have to basically put the bulbs into a refrigerator during that period to mimic that winter frost. And then we can plant in the spring. Based on their characteristics, they're classified as different types of garlic. I guess there's two categories, hardneck versus softneck. Hardnecks typically have a flower stem that gives it that hardneck structure versus softnecks typically don't have that. And then within those two major groups, you have a few subtypes. The hardnecks seem to be more adapted to the warmer tropical climate. So the majority of the varieties we selected the Creole, Asiatic, turban types, porcelain, purple stripes, and the recambles fall into that hardneck category. But I did include some of the softneck types, which typically are more in line with the U.S. mainland varieties. Like the long storing, long shelf life type varieties are more of the softneck types. So what we would um, find in the grocery stores would most likely be a softneck garlic. Yes, and when you rip open the garlic, you won't typically see a stem in the center of the whorl. Typically, how you can tell it's a soft neck. And because the hardnecks typically have a shorter shelf life, they're sold more locally. So you'd find most of them probably in like an Oregon, Washington, California market, like farmer's market versus a wholesale type of market. But because of the shelf life characteristic that to ship garlic to Hawaii, it's typically on a boat. So it's taking a long period. So that shelf life is brought down significantly mm-hmm. just due to transportation. Mm-hmm. But if you're growing it on the U.S. mainland, it's a lot easier to get it from the farm to the market. So you started these trials five years ago, sharing the research with growers, funding the project through grants. And what have you learned? Garlic can be grown here. There's a potential for a higher-end, high-value market for local garlic in Hawaii. I don't think that we're going to compete with China and California for the wholesale market, so for production, for producers in Hawaii, I don't think you should try and import replace those markets. But getting into farmers markets where higher value can take place for fresh product or developing products that have higher value, so like garlic chili oil doesn't require a lot of product, but you can market it as a Hawaii-grown product, and that value would be significantly increased. We've been working with the KCC Culinary Innovation Center with Dr. Lauren Tamamoto. So she's been our food scientist on this particular project. She's been on the grant since we started with Department of Ag. Her and her students at the KCC Culinary Innovation Center have been partnering with us to come up with different value-added products. So over the last four or five years, we've been able to make stuff like black garlic, 
black garlic can be higher value if marketed correctly. Basically, it's a fermented garlic product, and it gives that garlic a sweeter, savory flavor instead of that spicy, pungent flavor. And we're using that that flavoring in different things. Um, ice cream was one of them, and it's very interesting flavor. No way, ice uh, cream. Yeah, black garlic ice cream. I was fooling around with stuff like pizza, so slicing it up and flavoring pizza with the black garlic, like a roasted chicken pizza that you just want to add flavoring. You can put slices of black garlic on top. Uh, pickled garlic is another option, like gerankyo, but I'm not sure if that has a high enough value to justify it. Versus the black garlic, I think you can ask for up to fifteen dollars a pound to twenty dollars a pound for that particular product if marketed correctly. So you're assisting growers develop a method to grow garlic in Hawaii, and economically speaking, best to target that consumer who's who's willing to pay extra for a fresh garlic grown in Hawaii. And from the last few years, we've been able to increase the number of garlic growers. In Hawaii, I think we've introduced at least six to seven new farmers, and this last year was their first harvest. And one of the farmers on Maui was able to produce, I think, 900 pounds this year of garlic, marketing at six or seven dollars a pound, which is way higher than you would see a California garlic in the market. And this coming year, they're considering expanding their production. To meet their market demand, and I think they're only selling it to a few locations. Would these farms be sourcing straight to restaurants? Right now, that's that's been my recommendation. So that's probably where they're at now is direct to restaurants, basically right after harvest.、Uh, restaurants can hang on to this garlic for a while. That's why, so they can bulk order it if they have their refrigerator space、mm-hmm. to take that whole 900 pounds and use that throughout the year. Should last within the refrigerator for four to six months. Okay, therefore, not really making it into the public market. What is the flavor of the local garlic? To me, it's not as pungent. Even the color and texture, to me, it's a lot whiter, a lot cleaner feeling to me than mainland garlic. I've dropped a few off at different chefs to see what they think. A few have gone to the Culinary Innovation Center as well to taste it. When I've dropped off some garlic and I got some opinions, and most of them have said that they don't—it's not what they typically get from their vendors, as far as color, flavor, and each variety has its own characteristics. So, if we can get more success with different varieties, I think we can hopefully expose Hawaii to the different eating qualities of garlic, the different flavor profiles. I guess you could say. Similar to like cupping coffee from different locations, you can get different garlics that have different aromas, different flavors. But I don't think we're there yet as an industry. I think we're just figuring out how to grow it and can we keep it going consistently at this point. And、um, there's room for expansion. This new grant coming down the pipe, though, is very helpful in allowing you to expand to to other locations on the Big Island. Definitely, it's also giving us ability to look at new varieties. So every year,、uh, the seed company I've been working with is called Fillery, F-I-L-A-R-E-E, and every year I look at the seed catalog that they have out, and there's always something different. So 
we try to throw in new stuff every year into the, the trials to see if there's other promising varieties. Okay, and because you're working with the Department of Ag, this right now is mainly for farmers who are doing bigger crop production. What if it were like a small, just backyard farmer, uh, somebody who wants to grow garlic? Is that something that's possible? Yeah, it's the same concept, just on a smaller scale. So Mm -hmm. um, it would be the same thing. You could go to the market and your leftover garlic in October, you're not going to eat it, throw it in the refrigerator, store it till November, December, and then plant it in a pot or your garden or wherever you have room available. And if you have the space, go for it and grow your own. Because fresh garlic is, in my opinion, amazing compared to store-bought garlic. So give it a chance. And you can even order the garlic seed instead of buying it from the market if you wanted to try some of the ones that have done well for us. You can go to Filari and order straight from them, and they'll ship it to you in Hawaii. So if I am interested in buying garlic seed, and this mm-hmm. company does ship to Hawaii, what variety would you recommend, say, if I were in, not in Wahiwa, but say maybe drier Eva? I would say try the German Extra Hardy. Um, it's a porcelain type that has been the standard, I think, in all of our trials for the last five years. It's the only one that has been consistent every year that we've planted it at all three locations. Hmm. From seed to table, you handle a lot of garlic. How do you prepare garlic? How do you like eating garlic? I like to chop it up and pan fry it, crisp it up, and then I buy chili oil, mix it with the chili oil, kind of infuse it into the chili oil, mix a little bit of salt and pepper into that, and then I use that and mix it with a bunch of different things. I put it on spam musubis in between the spam and the rice. If I make like a chicken salad sandwich, I'll mix that in the chicken salad with the mayo to give it some flavor and some spice. Other than that, I like putting it in prime ribs whole or dicing it up and mixing it in fried rice. Those are my kind of go-tos with with garlic. Thank you, Jensen. Now I'm super hungry. Ah, that sounds so good. (laughs) So am I. Me three. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. So be on the lookout for locally grown garlic in a market or restaurant near you. That was our Lillian Song speaking with Waihua Extension Agent Jensen Ueda. He and fellow Extension Agent Kylie Tavares will soon be expanding the garlic trials to Hilo in Kona thanks to a Hawaii County grant. And that's it for today. Tomorrow, Dr. Kathy Kozak of The Body Show joins us for a call-in show. Got questions about vaccines or testing? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.